Good morning. We get to open God's Word together this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1. If you want to make your way there, if you find the middle of your Bible and go a little bit to the right, you'll land there. Isaiah 1. So let me pray for us as we open the time in the Word. Father, thank you so much for the name Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins. I pray, Father, for our time in your word that we would find ourselves enamored with Jesus again, that you'd open our eyes once again to behold wonderful things here, that you'd use us for your kingdom purposes in the world. So incline our hearts now to obey what we see, open our eyes so we may behold the wonder of Christ coming to bring light into our darkness. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Reading Isaiah is a lot like a Rembrandt painting. So I don't know if you're familiar with Rembrandt, but here's a painting from 1646 called Adoration of the Shepherds of the Moment and the Gathering that Happened Around the Baby Christ when He was born and God brought light into our darkness. One of my seminary professors used to say that Rembrandt used the darkness to paint the light. And the more you stare at the painting, the more layers of darkness unfold, but the more the light illumines us and draws us in to behold the wonder of the baby that's there in the manger. The warmth of the light is radiating on every face and every eye is attuned to the baby there in the middle of the painting. And that's the Christmas story. Into our darkened world, God sent light. But what caught my eye this week was that guy almost blocking us out. That guy with his back toward us. His shoulder is moving in and his shadow is nearly blocking out the glory of Jesus' face. And what is Rembrandt doing with his darkened back toward us and his lean toward the baby Jesus? Not only is he showing us the attractive warmth that's drawing us in, but he's urging us with necessity to get there soon enough before his shadow eclipses the brightness of Jesus' face. There's, a, there's a, a measure of urgency that overtakes the viewer to find their seat right there before the man blocks us out. And that is, just in one sense, another way of looking at the book of Isaiah. It's a journey through the dark. And honestly, you guys, your eyes have to get acclimated to the dark. And that's what the first part of my sermon this morning is about. It's our eyes getting adjusted to just how dark things were. But once they do, and it may take a while, light emerges. And it's of such a brightness, such an attractive warmth, that it draws us in and it beckons us to come and woos us with a sense of urgency and expectancy to come find our place around that glorious Christ. When the dark gets darker, God's light shines brighter. And that is, in essence, what Isaiah is unpacking for us in the Old Testament. Isaiah 1 is like Rembrandt. He paints a vision of thick darkness in order to draw our souls to the wonder of God's hope-giving light. So we're going to spend some time this morning getting our eyes acclimated to the dark. On our way home yesterday from North Carolina, uh, we were there with family for Thanksgiving. We saw a sign on I-85 leaving North Carolina that said in 187 miles, there were two billboards side by side. Bucky's would be on the right. 
And uh, in a lot of ways, this sermon's not going to feel like 187 miles, but it is going to feel like a journey into the darkness so that we can see the light more clearly. This is God's light drawing us home, but we first have to reckon with how dark our day and age really is. So Isaiah 1-1 begins the historical setting. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. And immediately, a court is convened where God calls two witnesses to the stand. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. And these, these witnesses behold a shocking scene unfolding. As God testifies, I have raised children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. And then the prophet's voice summarizes the tragic scene. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. So this opening scene is this Lord crying out in anguish, lamenting the pain of his own people that he had created and bought and purchased out of Egypt to claimed as his own that they stiff-armed him and turned their back on him. And we overhear him, I have raised children, nurtured them, and I have watched them walk away. This is like a stab in the heart of a father and their savior. And God is not indifferent here towards sin. He's lamenting their sin, their waywardness. And the Lord's pain really comes through in this illustration. Even the animal kingdom doesn't behave this way. Oxen, they know who owns them and where their obligations fundamentally lie. Donkeys know the hand that feeds them. Every time my dog makes his way to the back door, they're saying something about the way the universe works. He is saying something about the way the universe works. And right here, it's not unfolding that way. And you can see the heavens and earth leaning in with wide eyes, just wondering, this is shocking. Israel, under the calling and care of God, has wandered off. And God himself even cries out in woe in verse 4. Sin-filled nation weighted down with iniquity. Things are not playing out the way they are supposed to be. In verse 4 even, that word for way down is the same word for glory in the original. It carries with this idea of a heaviness, a weightiness. Something weighty is supposed to communicate something worthy. But look at the tragic twist. Israel was created to showcase and display how weighty, how significant, how, how great God is in the world. And what are they weighed down with? Sin. Their glory had become shame. The worthy, weighty one had become so worthless and weightless to them that they had wandered off into the wilderness of darkness. They're multiplying godless evildoers, not God-exalters. Things have gone off the rails. And here in Isaiah chapter 1, heaven is lamenting the darkness playing out on earth. And Israel's wandering really illustrates our own. Their defiance and their independence project is just a picture of the human race's problem. I remember one time when, uh, when Ben was about six years old, I was trying to get the kids in bed, and for all you parents out there, you can probably amen this moment of, that's probably the worst time for dad and mom, right? Um, we're tired, they're tired, we're trying to get them in bed, barking out orders, and, and Ben just looks at me with this smirk on his face, and he says, ben, Dad, 
you don't demand me. I demand myself. And all the other kids, right, right when that happened, they just turn and face, what's dad going to do? And Ben starts chuckling. But I knew where that came from because it's alive and well in all of us. We all say, just like Israel, God, you, you don't demand me. I, I demand myself. And you can kind of see heaven and earth with that knee-jerk reaction, jerking their heads around, trying to see how is God going to respond to such treason, to such rebellion. Friends, how do you see sin this morning? Is it with outrage on a cosmic scale? Is it laced with the the folly and the satire of ox and donkeys being wiser than the human race? It's only God's word that awakens us just to see how shocking sin really is. You see, the world conditions us to normalize sin, to settle in for what is shockingly abnormal in this world. Only this word allows you to hear the overhear, overhear the lament of heaven when we turn our backs on him on earth. Only the light of this world will discomfort us in our darkness. And friends, we need that. So the passage continues, verse five. Why do you want more beatings, he says? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt, the whole heart is sick from the sole of the foot even to the head. No spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, and festering sores not cleansed, bandaged, or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate, your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard, like a shack in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So not only is this opening scene trying to communicate just how deeply disturbing sin actually is, it also is showing us how desensitizing sin is from God's discipline. The picture here is how independence is going awry in in Israel's experiment. It's backfiring left and right. Nothing is trending in a good direction. And the writer is pleading with them in verse 5. Just how many times... Will you hit the snooze button on God's alarm clock that keeps going off around you? And a spiritual sickness has settled into Israel. Every head, every heart, from the leadership all the way down, there's just this festering filth. This is a picture of humanity's hopeless condition apart from the light of Jesus Christ. It's pictured in Israel's hopeless connection. Before we went overseas to the Middle East, a a portion of our training was set aside for security training. So this team came in and they set up various scenarios and rooms all across our campus. So everyone in the meeting could see what was happening in each of these rooms. They put cameras in each of these rooms and would cast it up on the screen so that we could learn. So the first scenario that they, they kind of devised was this revolt that had happened in this country where these, this group was kidnapping Westerners to get money to support their revolt. And they started calling names. And the first one up was me. So I got called into the scenario room and I got ushered there and these grown men are dressed in all black. They have head coverings on and they're there to intimidate me. But I couldn't quite get into the moment just because I knew how staged it was. And so I'm kind of like smirkingly answering their questions and all of a sudden one guy inches up to me and he slaps me right across the face. And everyone in the room, Beck's in the room, my wife, and everyone turns back to see her response. But 
At that moment, a sense of gravitas, a sense of weightiness settled in on the room because they realized, okay, these are are real scenarios that could play out on, on, on the places where we were going. I was in the scenario room, but the lesson was for us all. And that's what we open to in Isaiah chapter 1. What we're witnessing here is a courtroom scene unfold where God is pleading with his people to come to grips with reality, to turn back to him, not turn their backs on him. But the situation applies to the whole human race. So we're watching on the screen Israel and God have this way through the prophet. And we are leaning in because what plagues Israel plagues us all. And Israel has become so desensitized, so clueless, so out of touch with reality that they have festering sores and they don't go to the doctor. They don't bandage the wounds. They don't address their need to turn to God. Foreign nations are literally plundering them left and right, and the message isn't getting through. Israel's not running for cover in the hands of their able Savior. They're trying to court favor with other nations and rely on their power to get them out of their bind. They remain vulnerable, the author says, like an isolated hut in a vineyard, but they think they are safe. They abandon God, and they are abandoned to the hands of their enemies, And that it shows, indeed, the true nature of the darkness that had had gripped them. They don't see the darkness that they're in. And that's the point. There's internal sirens going off. There's external sirens. And they're all unheeded right at this moment in the first gathering. An alarm went off. And so um, it was perfect timing. Israel is sick, but they don't feel sick. Israel is in danger, but they feel safe. And that's the danger of our sinful darkness is that it conditions us the more and more it prolongs to not heed the alarms going off everywhere. And perhaps the most unsettling, scariest piece of this text is that we can be in the dark just like Israel and not know it. We think we're in control, that we can manage our sinful darkness, but Isaiah gives us a different picture. Sin desensitizes us to God's discipline. And here's the summary statement. I resisted this all week because I wanted the poetry to just throw the furniture around in your mind because the images sting. But here's the summary statement of what we're learning. Living in sinful darkness is shocking. Living in sinful darkness is shocking and dangerous and desensitizing. Shocking and dangerous and desensitizing. The point This whole passage is it's not safe to run from your maker. Isaiah 1 is sounding an alarm. Sin should disturb us. It deeply disturbs the heart of God. It upends the whole way the universe was created to work. And the tension mounts because this question begins to loom. God was despised. His discipline is ignored. They continued to defy him. Would he turn from them? Is he done? Will it be lights out for the human race forever? And let's continue reading. Isaiah 1, 9. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom and we would resemble Gomorrah. So the writer here points out the fact that all is not lost because God has prolonged the the nation state Israel through a surviving remnant of his people. This was a sign that God was not done with them. Yes, they deserve to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, two places that were destroyed by God's judgment in the Old Testament, 
But now a few have survived. God wasn't done. So there's a sigh of relief. There's a ray of light in this passage. But right before that serves their presumption and pride, look at how the narrator addresses them to the word. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 10, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So in one sense, you're not like them, but hey, listen up. You are just like them in another sense. So listen up. You're not safe in your own presumption and pride and your religious identity. So listen up. This is what needs to be heeded. What are all your sacrifices to me, God says, verse 11. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offering. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with the festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. So notice, the darkness just got deeper. It's like Rembrandt painting a brushstroke of darkness that adds a layer of thickness to it because the religious identity and their remnant did not save them from God's future judgment. And even their religious routine can be a slippery slope where actually self-confidence is what they're relying in. God repeatedly declares here that he is disgusted, he's fed up with their Empty religious rhythms. They have their elaborate sacrifices. They strut into his temple with their fattened cattle. And, the, and inside, they could care less about him. But on the outside, they kept up the show. And he, this just absolutely tore at the heart of God. The blood of bulls and goats, in one sense, covered their hands. But it covered the deeper blood of injustice and a lack of mercy that had stained their hands. Religious activities can't cover up corruption. God sees through it all and God is done. And, and friends, acclimate to the darkness here. Not only is Israel walking off into the dark, but now God seems to be done. He's disgusted. He's, he's, he's saying, enough, enough. And this is, last week we talked about how religion kills and this week religion numbs. It's like anesthesia to our true condition. This is the dilemma we are in as the human race. Religion gives the illusion of light while our hearts remain in darkness there on your outline. Religion gives the illusion of light while our hearts remain in darkness. Religion is like doing your makeup and leaving the bathroom and forgetting that your blemishes are real. It's trusting that the cover-up is sufficient, that that's the true you. But God sees through it. And this is just what's playing out in Romans 1 and 2 in Israel's story of God's just condemnation to bring things that were hidden by religious activity out into the light. And Israel's guilty of both rebellion and empty religious routine here. And God seems to be done. And it's into this darkness that God sends the miracle of his light. We're at mile 186. We're almost at the light, guys, so hang on. So the narrator goes on his rant to join in with God was what God was saying there about seeking and cleansing and stop doing evil. Look in 117. 
The prophet continues, stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. What's the prophet saying? He's saying your religion should reflect the heart of God. And this is the heart of God on display. Justice and oppression ended and the rights of the fatherless upheld. What God cares about, his people should care about. But then in verse 18, God interrupts his rant. It's as if we've gone down this path before, right, with the Ten Commandments and giving law after law and a to-do list after to-do list, and it's just not registering, it's not computing, and the darkness has remained. And so when we are here at the end of our ropes, it's a good thing that God's rope is longer. Our darkness is not dark to him. A heart change is needed, and once our eyes have adjusted and acclimated to the thickness of the darkness, we finally get to light. Look in verse 18. He doesn't say, done, enough. What does he say? Come. God says, come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Can you imagine the heaven and earth that was, that was kind of beholding the, the situation of rebellion, and the backfiring of everything that God had done to redeem his people Now they're just probably in awe. What is God doing? He's leaning into this moment when they deserve judgment. He doesn't say, I'm done, and wipe his hands. He says, come, come, let's settle this. And this text reveals the light that beckons us out of our sinful darkness. Number one, come to God's provision of cleansing. Come to God's provision of cleansing. Notice the command, the shocking nature of the command. Come, and then the resolve, let's settle this. You and me, we're gonna go toe-to-toe in this courtroom and we're gonna clean this up together because you cannot do it on your own. For let's settle this, you may have another translation like let's reason together or there might be some other let's dispute this together. There There are really only two other places where this form of this Hebrew word is used in the whole Old Testament. And hang with me here because there is glory around the corner. Genesis chapter 20, Sarah is taken into Abimelech's house. And that night, Abimelech is warned not to touch her because she is another man's wife. And so he gives her a, a, a multitude of gifts and sends her back to Abraham. And he says, these are the words because he did not touch her, that you are fully vindicated. And that word for let's settle this and that word for vindicated are the same. Abimelech settled the issue for Sarah because no shame remained. Sarah left with her head held high and her honor intact and back to the embrace of her rightful husband. In Job chapter 23, the other use of this word is used, and it's a courtroom scene again, and Job answered in verse 1. I think it'll be on the screen. Today also my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy. Despite my groaning, I would plead my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Verse 6, would he prosecute me forcefully? No, he would certainly pay attention to me. Then an upright man could reason with him, and I would escape from my judge forever. That word for reason is this word for settling in Isaiah chapter 1. So get it. An upright man can reason with God, and even though Job deserves judgment, Job escapes from judgment. Job needs a righteous mediator to resolve the possibility of shame before God. So it's the same scene 
unpacked in different ways. Abimelech resolves potential shame and Sarah's honor is vindicated. A mediator resolves Job's shame and his potential shame is vindicated before God. He's absolved of guilt. What's the point? When God says, let's settle this, he means this, come. Stop running, come, let's convene the court and let's settle accounts so that both you and me are vindicated and we are in the right. This isn't just going to be a one-way provision. You and me, we're both getting out of this courtroom in the right, vindicated. So when God says, let's settle this, it's God committing himself to resolve the mess we've made in a manner that leaves both parties, him and us, above reproach. Somehow, in a miracle of mercy, friends, his honor is upheld when our dishonor of him is forgiven and cleansed. When he says, let's settle this, what does he mean by this? Well, he continues there in verse 18. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. It's the sin problem. It's not the stain problem. It's the sin problem that needs to be resolved so that the stain is resolved. And so God says, come on. Let's settle up here, and he's not looking at externals. He's looking at the heart of the matter. Isaiah points in Isaiah chapter 53 that we will get to later, and Blake made mention to earlier in the video. God is predicted to send Jesus, his very own son, to the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve. So think about what's happening here in Isaiah 1. He says, let's settle this, and he has in view the very cross of Jesus, where Jesus would die. The blameless one would take on the, the shame and the penalty of the blotted one so that the blotted ones could take the pl- place of the glorious and blameless one before God forever. That's the glory of the exchange that has happened at the cross of Jesus. Justice has been served and the joy of cleansing is ours. All because God satisfied the demands of justice with the blood of his son so that the stain of our sin is blotted out finally and forever and the judgment our sin deserved is paid in full. So here's the miracle on your outline. God is proven blameless and blotting out our sins. When he says let's settle this, the blood of Jesus is there to make us both walk out of that courtroom with our hands clean by a miracle of sovereign grace. We go from cornered here in this passage as the human race under God's judgments to cleansed, escaping judgment, and rightly so because justice has been served in the blood of his son. This is the light that pierces the night of God's justice, God's judgment against humanity and our waywardness to stray from him. Friends, I would just ask you, have you let God lean in to say, I want to settle it between you and me through the blood of my son? It's the only way. We don't have just a remedy for the world. This is the only remedy for what ails the human race that God would resolve on his own initiative to meet his own terms and to come to grips with the justice that was demanded by our sin and pay it in full at the cross of Jesus. You see, the Bible is brutally honest about how dark our sinful hearts are. Our sin goes deeper than a stain. It goes deeper than the externals that we get preoccupied with. We can't Clorox ourselves enough to get rid of the stain. 
We try, we try, right? Self-harm might be one way that your, your, your uh, heart is inclined. Self-indulgence might be another way to just eliminate it and push it to the side. Maybe even self-regulation in religious routine. And all of it will backfire. The stain will remain. It might be out of your purview for a season, but it will never work to remove the source. This is the Bible's message. You can't fix yourself. The Bible is equally astonishing about how brutal the news is, but equally astonishing about how bright the light of hope is. No other religion has a God that says, let's settle this, this side of eternity, and pays the cost with his very own blood. There is no other religion that says, you need cleansing this deeply and provides it this freely. That is it. He takes you from one moment being dirty to one moment being completely clean by the application of the blood of Jesus on your behalf. He has stripped sin of its ability to condemn you if you are in Jesus Christ as a believer in him. Amazing news. Tim Keller said these words, we're far worse than we ever imagined and far more love than we could ever dream. Amen. Do you believe it, Christian, in this room? Do you believe he has washed it white as snow? God's invitation to come here. Let us get in on the glory of the light that is shining from this scene right here to show us the depth of his cleansing. And then this passage ends with this worldwide vision of coming. Now look at number two there on your outline. Come into God's pathway of repentance and reliance. And I just want to read a few more verses from Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2. But verse 19 and 20 there in Isaiah 1 show the pathway of repentance and reliance. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the way of repentance. He's opened up the floodgates. It's like when we were going to North Carolina this past week and, and Bucky's, there's this, all this clamoring, right, to get hot sandwiches right there in that middle area, that circular area. And at one point, all the employees say, briskets on the floor. And everybody clamors for even more attention, right? I mean, even more trying to get their spot because they want to get a hot brisket that just landed on the cutting board that's in the sandwich. They want it in. And all of a sudden, all the beaver nuggets and everything else that you find in a bucky is just paled in per- comparison because God is saying, brisket's on the floor. Why would you go over there? The good things of the land are here. Why? Stop going the way of rebellion and religion and come back to me in repentance and reliance. That's the way home. That's the way to the meal. And then look at the world that's getting in on this great news. Isaiah chapter 2. Just read this with me. This is the vision that Isaiah sees. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountain and raised and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his way so that we may walk in his path. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. 
They will beat their, their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. House of Jacob, come and let's walk in the Lord's light. This is the world coming. So God initially says, come, let's settle this. And the world is saying, come, let's get in on this, right? It's like that's what's reverberating and echoing. God is ringing the dinner bell. Come home, people, come home. And it's like all the ox that beat us there formally and all the donkeys that beat us there formally, we're like, no way, guys. We're getting there first. We're going home. And the world is getting in on it. And our global offering, you guys, it is us opening these floodgates so that the world can come and get in. It's brisket on the floor for all the nations of the world. Come and get in on this satisfying meal, the only one that cleanses. It's not the close shoulder of the guy in the Rembrandt painting forcing us to, to get in before it's too late. No, it's the open invitation. Come on, nations. Come on. Stream into this place where God's light is beckoning us and wooing us home. This is the glory of our mission as a church. Number three there on your outline, come to God's proclamation that brings peace to the world. He says, come first. The nation starts saying, come. And this passage ends with, come, let's walk in the light of the Lord. This is just glory for the world. It's echoing out for all to hear and to come home. It's like a river is flowing from Jerusalem like we're reading in Acts right now of instruction and the nations are flowing to Jerusalem to hear this promise of hope for the world. And notice the justice settling issue between God and man that's evident in this news that we've heard this this morning when he says, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow, is the justice settling issue for the world. That's what happens at the end of the vision in 2.4. He settles disputes. He brings peace to a broken world. The instruction goes out and mankind is deeply humbled and the hostility is ended among the nations. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But At our previous church in North Carolina, I remember we, we had a Memorial Day tradition there where we would have former soldiers stand up and we would honor them for their sacrifices. And this one day, one was in the front here on the right side and one was all the way in the back in the, in the back side. And we clapped for them and honored them. And one of my buddies was talking to both of them at the end of the service. And one soldier, the one up front, fought for America in World War II. And the one out back fought for Japan in World War II. And that morning they were singing under the banner that this Jesus unites us. We might be, have differing interests here in the world, but this Jesus brought peace into a world of hostility. That's the light emanating from this text. So I, friends, I encourage you to come to the light, to the only remedy that brings cleansing for your sins. It's found in the blood of Jesus Christ. I urge us as a church to walk in this light that God saves, he settles accounts, he washes clean so we can be honest with one another in the beautiful provision of his good news for the world, that his reign is one of peace 